to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. From the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Saint Luke. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out saying, Jesus, Master, Have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Do you want to know a fairly common situation that I find unspeakably odd and disconcerting? Even though it's a daily occurrence shared by millions of people, I still get a weird feeling when it happens to me. I mean, it's really unlike almost any other experience in life. So what is this situation? It's that brief period of time after you've landed back in your own country on an international flight. You've been in a place that's not only not your home, they don't even speak the same language as you. You spend all this time negotiating a different culture with different customs, prejudices, climate, topography, usually a, a, a language that far outstrips your high school German or Japanese. And now, you're walking down the exit ramp through the maze of hallways with glass walls that let you look out on the rest of the airport, and through the glass you can see the Starbucks and the sharper image, and you, you can almost smell the coffee. You're hungry, and the gnawing sensation in your stomach makes you secretly obsessed with the thought of grabbing a $12 cheeseburger or a slice of real pizza. But all of that, so tantalizingly close, seems light years away from you because you know that you're soon going to descend into Dante's fourth circle of hell. That human cattle pen called customs and immigration, with its maze of zigzagging lines and retractable barriers that make you feel like you're 12 years old waiting to ride the corkscrew or the elevator. You finally make it up to the front of the line, 
perhaps moments before you need IV fluids and a power nap. And the immigration officer sitting in a glassed-in cubicle with a secret-looking computer that you're sure has information about that ill-considered water balloon episode in 10th grade American Lit. And the officer has a sour face and by the looks of it, a lingering hemorrhoid affliction. And they wave you to come forward, and you think you're okay because you know, you've plastered a smile on your face and you're waving your passport like a medieval holy relic meant to ward off the demons of the perpetually disappointed immigration person who clearly didn't get enough sleep the night before. Janice, or Frank, or whatever their name is, takes your passport, scans it, and then holds it up to match it against your face. At which point it occurs to you that you really didn't sleep any better the night before than the person on the other side of the glass. And, and, and then there's this awkward pause. It probably only lasts for two or three seconds, but, but that brief stretch of time feels interminable. Long enough that you probably could pay off your mortgage and student loans before Janice or Frank finally utters the words that you've been waiting desperately to hear, which is, welcome home. Welcome home. And it occurs to you that you've been in this weird notional geographic space for some time now. I mean, even though you landed in your own country, you've been occupying some alien shadowlands, neither the country you're coming from nor the country you're coming home to. You, you, you've languished in what Chicana author Gloria Anzaldúa calls the borderlands. Now, she writes that the borderlands aren't just a geographic boundary between two places. They are a psychic social and cultural terrain that we inhabit and that inhabits all of us. She says they're vague, ill-defined spaces created by the emotional residue of an unnatural boundary. The prohibited and forgotten are its inhabitants. As Francisco Garcia points out, because of this healing encounter of the ten lepers, Jesus converts the borderlands between Galilee and Samaria from a forbidden wasteland to a sacred place. Perhaps even a thin place where the veil between the material and the spiritual wor worlds is lifted. Now after Jesus, it's a place where heaven touches earth and healing occurs a restoration to the community. In our gospel for this morning, we meet Jesus wandering around the borderlands, the almost but not quite yet space defined by its prohibited and forgotten inhabitants. As we open up, Luke tells us we're back on the road with Jesus, and we're headed toward Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, of course, is a code word that lets the director know that it's time for the orchestral swell as the suspense gets ratcheted up a notch. But see, we've, we've seen the end of the movie, so we know what happens when Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem. And therefore, all he does on his way 
is colored by his impending death. Now, an additional critical stage direction in our drama comes with naming yet another geographical location. That is to say, not only was Jesus heading to Jerusalem to his ultimate demise, but Google Maps, according to Luke, sends him through Samaria. Now, Samaria, if you haven't gathered, is the home of that ignominious group of heretics called Samaritans. Samaritans were close cousins of the Jews with whom a long and ungenerous family feud took place over a few hundred years. And needless to say, the Jews following Jesus on the road to Jerusalem would have been decidedly uncomfortable. You know, what with their side trip through the soundstage for the biopic about the Hatfields and the McCoys. This, this little geographical throwaway line about traveling through Samaria serves the director's purpose of adding yet even more tension to the ominous journey upon which Jesus has embarked. Now, the scene is set, we turn to characterization. And as any good director knows, all drama, at least drama that's remotely interesting, is fueled by conflict. I mean, think about it. Whether it's a, a terrorist, a crooked politician, a cuckolded husband, an, under a, an unappreciated businesswoman, or a bullied 16-year-old, conflict generates the sparks necessary for drama. Harry Potter finally squares off against Voldemort, Frodo versus Sauron and Mount Doom, Luke Skywalker faces down his old man. It's, it's all there, and it makes a certain amount of sense because who wants to spend two hours watching a movie where everybody gets along? Like, and all the characters keep giving each other hugs. The introduction of ten lepers into our gospel script creates even greater dramatic conflict. Lepers, as you may recall, were folks, uh, folks who, by law, lived under a perpetual restraining order. They weren't supposed to come within six feet of normal folks, which is why Luke tells us they were keeping their distance. In fact, because leprosy was an infectious disease, lepers had to leave their homes and live in colonies. Most of the time, they were invisible to society. But once in a while, they showed up stage left, looking all ex exhausted like extras from The Walking Dead. And so as it stands, Jesus and his Jewish entourage meet up with a roving gang of social outcasts on the wrong side of town amid a journey to certain death. Luke, he really knows how to set the stage for a good drama. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, the ten lepers call out. There's conflict there. What do you, what do you, what, what's he supposed to do? Luke's readers would have understood the dilemma. Jesus and his followers shouldn't be talking to lepers. It feels like the babysitter going to check the fuse box in the cellar. What, what, what are they going to do? Intimidate them? Uh, tell them to stand back? Ignore them? Or hope they'll go away? Because here's the problem. Jesus has two conflicting reputations to uphold. I mean, on the one hand, he's something of a religious 
role model. So people are watching uh, how he'll handle the legal and social ramifications of this particular exchange. But on the other hand, he's also demonstrated in the past that he's willing to buck the legal and social precedents in favor of showing mercy. It's a real poser. And you can, you can almost feel the disciples cringe. They're praying silently that Jesus doesn't do anything stupid here that will get them, A, into trouble, or B, into the leprosy wing of the Samaritan Hilton. But when Jesus saw them, Luke says, Jesus said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now this is Luke's rather subtle way of saying that Jesus wasn't conflicted at all. <laughs> as soon as he saw the lepers, he told them what they needed to do to be healed. Now they, of course, bore responsibility for obeying, but, but, but Jesus acted mercifully toward them without any of the hand-wringing so fundamental to good cinema. Now, everybody's still worried about what Jesus will do when faced with a known situation, it appears, except Jesus himself. He knows. So the ten lepers go, they're healed. End of Act 1. Now, as Act 2 opens, we find one of the lepers returning to offer Jesus thanks. Where are the other nine? Well, we don't know. Probably on the way to see family and friends from whom they'd been denied access since the onset of their disease. I mean, in all likelihood, they went looking for the embrace that had been so long denied them. And who could blame them? But one leper stopped short, returning to Jesus in gratitude. Now, at this point, Luke pops in another interesting little character notation, he tells us that the leper who returned was a Samaritan. Now we're left to assume that Luke identifies the returning leper as a Samaritan because presumably the others weren't. Now think about it for a minute. Remember what we said about the Jews and the Samaritan. I mean, they were mortal enemies. Oil and water, night and day, MAGA world and the truth. One exception, though, prevailed in the strict separation of Jews and Samaritans. There was one time it was okay. When you were a leper. Living in a leper colony apparently relativized social and religious claims. Because when you're dying of a social, as a social outcast of a horrible, disfiguring disease, well, you know, some feuds just don't seem that important. It's difficult to maintain a theological dispute in a leper colony. Now, I find it fascinating that the one place in Jesus' world where social and religious boundaries could be crossed with impunity was in the midst of the forgotten and the prohibited. Lepers became family with people that they'd never even met, let alone shared a meal with. If the one place a family feud could be healed long enough to see the face of your enemy was apparently in a leper colony. Now, I say one place. 
But you see, our story tells us about another place where differences are relativized, where people find healing and become a community. Boundaries are crossed. And where is that place? It's in the presence of Jesus. In Jesus' presence, lepers are healed. The Samaritan is reconciled with the Jew. That's remarkable. This, this drama in two acts is given cosmic shape, however, in virtue of its relationship to Jesus' passion. He's on the way to Jerusalem. The death that he would meet there also relativizes social claims, making geographic boundaries, racial differences, age distinctions, gender divisions of no ultimate consequence. When you're dying as a social outcast of a horrible, disfiguring disease, whether physical or social, it's possible to have a horrible, disfiguring disease that is purely social in nature. We know that. Whatever your case, though, some feuds just don't seem that important now. All the barriers that so easily divide us have been torn down in the cross of Christ. See, in Jesus' presence, we're able to gather together now around this table with those whom others belittle and ignore. In a world where people devise ever newer and more ingenious ways to exclude others from their communities, in a world in which we build higher walls and stronger battlements, in a world where crosses and leper colonies exist to dispose of human waste, Jesus says, no. In the face of all the name calling and lynching and fighting and warring, Jesus appears, takes his own place on a tree and offers up what at first sounds like a whispered, no. Weak, ineffectual, the words of a dying man on the government hit list. But the echoes reverberate. That no rings on. Down through the centuries, that no resounds on the lips of saints and martyrs through the lives of the devoted and the faithful, the no of Jesus becomes our battle cry in a war against the powers and principalities who would set us against one another, who would have us believe that even one person is a foreigner to us, a stranger in our midst, a person worth nothing more than to be demeaned and exploited to be excluded when faced with the temptation of dismissing someone because they're different, when persuaded to push the Samaritan lepers of our society into ghettos meant only to protect us from the rebuke of their presence, when convinced that the only way to silence that which threatens our cherished beliefs is by nailing it to the cross, Jesus comes into our midst sits down at the table spread before us with vivid reminders of his own brokenness, his own otherness, and he says, 
No. No. After all our wall building and the division we've sown, when we finally approach Jesus seeking the reconciliation and healing only he can give, Jesus ventures into the borderlands to embrace us, not as strangers, not as foreigners, not as outcasts, but as friends. On October 6, 1998, two men coaxed young Matthew Shepard into a car. They drove him out into the country. They robbed him, pistol whipped him, and tied him to a fence and left him to die. That Matthew Shepard was gay gave them all the motive they needed to inflict as much damage as their venal little minds could concoct. And in the years since, Matthew Shepard has become a symbol of all that hatred can do when unleashed on the world. But it makes me wonder how anyone gets to that point. How, how do you turn your fear of difference into something so lethal that when it breaks over the levees, everything in its way gets swallowed up in death? For two men in Wyoming 24 years ago, the prospect of LGBTQ people coexisting was an abomination. Matthew Shepard's very existence threatened a whole way of mapping the borders of this world. See, if your world is threatened, if your equilibrium is disrupted, you gotta figure out what you're gonna do to, to, to restore balance. And if violence is all you know, Violence is what you bring to the existential party. Insecurity, fear, meaninglessness. They construct the borderlands. We wall off people who are different, sometimes literally building walls to keep them away from us. We call them dehumanizing names and tell ourselves that somehow we're different, that, 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 that these folks deserve our fear and loathing. But Jesus knocks down the walls that we build to keep people in the borderlands and offers healing to those who've been so easily cast aside. Matthew Shepard died October 12, 1998, six days after being tied to a fence. It wasn't a cross, but it might just as well have been. Because Jesus was there. He navigated the borderlands constructed for the prohibited and the forgotten. He made the forbidden journey to hold Matthew Shepard's broken body in his own scarred hands. And as he carried him away, his broken body, I could have sworn I heard Jesus whisper, 
No. No. And for those of us who want to follow him into the borderlands, which have been transformed by Jesus into thin places where heaven and earth finally meet, perhaps more than anything now, we need to learn how to say no to. Not in a whisper, but in a deep-throated cry for justice. Because whether we like to admit it or not, each of us has spent time ourselves in the borderlands as a member of the prohibited and forgotten. Which means that if we're ever going to find the thin places where heaven and earth meet, if we're ever going to kneel in Jesus' presence, then we have a responsibility to return and seek out those who've been forced to live there, to go back. They need us. But we're always in danger of forgetting that we need them too. We need them too. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.